I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is the conclusion to our 2022 Advent series, The Long Winter Breaks. As far as the church calendar is concerned, Christmas doesn't end on December 26. As Advent and another year conclude, may we move into the next season of our lives and discipleship prepared to change and to be changed. I don't know if you guys know this, but today's like a holiday or something. We know this because of the calendar. Even primitive peoples kept calendars. In the ancient world, there was the Hebrew calendar, the Egyptian calendar, the Greek calendar, the Chinese, the Babylonians. Wherever society surfaces, advanced or less so, so does a means of charting the passage of time. We've always been anticipating the future with names and numbers, observing recurring days and seasons of celebration and remembrance. And the calendar in which you and I operate is a slight adaptation of the Roman calendar. And the transition from one year to another and the celebration of one year ending and another beginning is in many sense uh, an ancient time-honored tradition by humans throughout the world. But we are American Protestant Christians. And for many of us, the church calendar is sort of an unfortunate stranger. Maybe many of you do not know, as I didn't know for most of my life, that currently, this week, today actually, many Christians around the world are celebrating something called Christmastide, which is uh, 12 days of Christmas celebration that begins at sunset on Christmas Eve. Yes, that's where the song comes from. Advent, uh, the four weeks leading up to Christmas tide, is sort of a time for anticipatory reflection. But then when Jesus comes, it's time to celebrate, not uh, with a single crammed day of gifts and food and family, but with 12 days of feasting and partying and worship. December 26th, for example, is the feast of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, you know, the, the one from the song. You guys know the song? You know. Good King Wenceslas looked out on the Feast of Stephen. It's the song sang by uh, Bean Bunny at the doorstep of Scrooge's Counting House in the Muppet Christmas Carol. Or, you know, by Hugh, Hugh Grant and his limo driver in Love Actually. My point is that there's a, a rich tradition in church history of giving more time and space to celebrate the incarnation of God in Jesus of Nazareth than just a single day. And if you're anything like me, I don't actually make a ton of time to reflect on and consciously celebrate the arrival of Jesus on December 25th. It's a beautiful day, probably my favorite day of the whole year. And I am, honestly, I am often present to God and his incredible generosity, at least for a lot of the day. Our family has so much fun, but honestly, I probably spent more time playing, you know, new Nintendo games and action figures with my kids than I did in thoughtful worship and reflection. So, enter Christmastide. But that's news to a lot of us, at least it was to me. For most of us, it usually goes, there's a few days off for Christmas, the big day, uh, and then the next thing that you have is sort of the bank holiday on New Year's or New Year's Day. And in the church world and amongst its employees and leaders, the Sunday after Christmas is second only to Super Bowl Sunday in what I like to call a a soul bummer. (laughs) Those two days and then all of the summer season... Just a bummer deep down at a soul level, summer is. Also a time in which, you know, like less people show up, church marches on. So when I was first apprenticing as a Bible teacher, I was a a grunt on staff at a megachurch. Not even a pastor at all, I was the video guy. 
but I was, you know, mentoring or being mentored by someone to learn how to teach the Bible. And I was always assigned the Sunday after Christmas. And not knowing any better, I'd say, who, me? Oh, boy. You know, I'm the... <laughs> It was exciting then, but, you know, a few hundred weekly Bible teachings later, you lose some of that newcomer's thrill. And I thought about that this week. See, next Sunday, we begin a new series, which is exciting. Been planning it for months. But knowing the night, this night, as is the case every year, uh, it's sort of a one-off. And I was talking to Cam about this last week, and he's been here himself, and he joked, hey, man, this is his exact quote, hey, man, copy-paste. <laughs> And I, for a moment, I went, hmm, like that. But I didn't. I didn't. You wouldn't know anyway. You'd be like, wow, this is fresh material. I can't, with integrity, as your pastor, do that. So I thought about it. I prayed about it. And here's where we're at. Where else to begin tonight but at the beginning? Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 the entire story of the scriptures, the epic meta-narrative of God and his interaction with the story of you and me and God and his people, it all begins in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And, listen, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The word spirit here is ruach in Hebrew, and it can also be translated as breath or wind. In Hebrew, this is kind of a, a word picture of the spirit of God as, of all things, a, a bird flapping its wings, so to speak, hovering over the waters as he begins, a, uh, prepares himself for a work of new creation. Now, keep that in mind and turn to the right in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, I don't have to ask, I know that you guys are up for Bible work because you showed up on the holidays. So the faithful few, the remnant. Yeah. Luke chapter 1. Let's read beginning with verse 30. This is a scene from the Christmas story. What, what, what's funny about that? I just explained Christmas tide is still going. Yeah, pastor of Christmas. Here we go. Luke chapter 1, verse 30. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants, that's Israel, forever. His kingdom will never end. So in the story, this messenger from Yahweh, something called an angel, is telling this poor, ordinary teenage girl, probably somewhere to the tune of 13 years old, we think, that she is going to get pregnant and give birth to the Messiah, Israel's long-awaited saving king. The Messiah was to be David's descendant, and that's covered, apparently. But notice, here we learn that he will also be called the Son of the Most High, which is a weird thing to say, and Mary has questions about it. And, and one big question in particular, look at verse 34. How can this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? Verse 35, the angel answered, what? The Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. In his beautiful book on Advent and Christmas Tide, Brian Zahn writes this, 
When Mary questioned the angel saying, how can this be? I do not know a man. The angel simply responded, the Holy Spirit. This is the enduring pattern by which God brings redemptive newness into the world. How? The Holy Spirit. Simon Ponsonby, who's an Oxford theologian, writes of this passage, It is the Holy Spirit as the immediate divine executive, the agent of God's will, who weds the eternal Son with mortal humanity. The creative spirit who hovers over creation overshadows Mary, creating, conceiving, and connecting God and blood, making out of Mary's matter what was not there before. The Spirit performs a regenerative and recreative work. This new human life born of Mary is the old humanity from Adam's seed, which is joined to the eternal divinity of the Son by the action of the Spirit. Which is beautifully put, but notice those two adjectives, regenerative and recreative. These two things, I sometimes feel, are what I most want for myself and for the people that I love. I've got a very long way to go, but I've been following Jesus for many, many years of my life now, and I am, like anyone, often discouraged and disheartened by my own failure. As one of our overseers in training put in a note on this teaching, the longer I walk with Jesus, the more opportunity for growth there seems to be. The night of Christmas Eve was stressful for our family. It is for a lot of people, but we had just left this beautiful celebration with you guys, um, and it was late, and our kids were cranky, and bad moods became contagious, and there was still a lot of stuff to do. And I sort of lost my patience and became short-tempered, and I felt as if there was a moment where I was in my kitchen, I was wiping down countertops, and God's Spirit told me, you need to go and repent to the family and salvage the evening. There was still stuff to do. We were still, you know, we light the candles together as a family. So I carried the kids to the couch, everyone grumbling, and I confessed my sin. I asked their forgiveness. They did the same. The evening was saved. But behind it all, the distant pestering awareness, uh, self-proclaimed pastor of Christmas, knows better, still can't tame the tongue. In these years of my discipleship, I have by no means arrived, but I have changed. The ways in which I fail serve as a reminder of the changing I have yet to do and how long it takes. And since I haven't arrived and won't, this side of resurrection, I remain dependent on God. But I can't help but wonder to myself, will I ever beat this or that sin, overcome this habit, this pattern of thinking or reacting or behaving? Because I want more than simple attitude tweaks. I want regeneration and recreation. Now, one more time, turn to the right in your Bibles once more to the letter we call First Thessalonians. This is where will land the plane this evening. Thessalonians was written to uh, a church in Thessalonica, which is uh, by, by one master apprentice called Paul. And he packs the letter with trademark uh, theological density about Jesus' kingship and Jesus' return. He talked about judgment and sexuality and grief and gratitude and price, uh, prophecy, life and community. And eventually, like any letter, Paul's message reaches this conclusive finale and Paul begins his goodbye with a prayer. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 23. Paul says, May God himself... The God of peace sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body 
be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus the King. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. So Paul, he concludes his letter to this persecuted new baby church, um, to the Christian Thessalonians by praying for them. And he does this a lot. Here in chapter 5, Paul writes, May God himself, the God of peace, on and on, uh, keep you blameless for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Earlier in the letter, in chapter 3, Paul included a prayer that's nearly identical in language and concern to this final invocation. Back there in chapter 3, he wrote, May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. In both prayers, the emphasis is on the sanctification of the Thessalonians, of the Christians, that they might be holy and blameless. One of the most interesting elements of the prayer we find in this text is uh, one that's sort of lost in translation. Unlike that prayer that I just read in chapter 3, which addresses the entire community of believers, everyone here in this room, all this kind of one group, you as in all of you, Paul's prayer here in chapter 5 is actually for the individual. Now, you know, if, of course, as Americans, our, our culture teaches us to assume individualism by default. We think of the Bible as speaking to us specifically all the time, and we sort of browse and pick its contents with this presupposition, you know, because context, uh, that the idea that it's not always about us is a buzzkill when you're reading the Bible for, you know, inspirational quotes. But <laughs> Paul's paradigm is reversed. Ordinarily, Paul speaks by default to the community, meaning you as in all of you. But in this particular prayer, he shows a unique concern for the individual followers of Jesus in Thessalonica. And by extension, you as individuals, not just you the group, but you wherever you're at, me as an individual. Paul is, as usual, he's concerned for the sanctification of the church. Of course, that doesn't change, but it's more than that. He wants each and every individual believer to be sanctified in his language through and through. In theology, sanctification is the process by which we are made more like God slowly over time, more capable of emulating Jesus, or to use a Bible word, more holy. In tonight's text, Paul presents this complicated framing of the Thessalonian sanctification. His prayer is that their whole spirit, soul, and body would be kept blameless for the occasion of Jesus' triumphant return, something he calls the parousia, which is a Greek word often used to describe the arrival or the visit of a great king or a foreign emperor accompanied by this huge celebration. So some foreign dignitary, someone of great stature and status comes into the city and everyone pours out in the streets to celebrate. Hooray! Look at this guy coming in here. In fact, parousia was also used to describe the visitation of a deity who had come to earth to help someone in need. So Paul, listen to this, he lifts this rhetoric from the ancient world that has to do with returning emperors or visiting gods. And in his letter, he takes that and applies it to Jesus of Nazareth, which we get. But at the time, remember, that's a peasant stonemason turned rabbi who had recently been executed by the Roman Empire as an enemy of the state. So in other words, to many, just a dude. Think about how wacky that sounds in context. Paul prays that the Thessalonians will be made completely blameless for the triumphant return of King Jesus when God himself appears once again to humanity, the one true king of kings and the one true God over all. The thing is, 
we often think of the return of Jesus as the occasion on which we will be made holy and blameless. That is, now we're imperfect, locked in this sort of like lifelong arm wrestling match with our holiness and our sin, not unlike uh, Sylvester Stallone in Over the Top, you know. And, and of course, what, you guys don't care about Over the Top? Come on, this, listen, this New Year's Day church, I'm doing the best I can here. I thought that was pretty good. I was excited about it. In fact, when I was going over this teaching this afternoon, I was like, oh, right, I did the Sylvester Stallone thing. Can't wait. So in the idea, you are regularly uh, Sylvester Stallone, and the big guy on the other side is your sin. But think about it like this. This paradigm renders sanctification itself kind of superfluous. Why arm wrestle sin when the work will inevitably be brought to completion later on? At the return of Jesus or at the resurrection, we will slam the sweaty arm of sin on the table. Again, not unlike Sylvester Stallone <laughs> and over the top. <laughs> and then we will be loosed from evil's grip forever. And while it's true that the work of Jesus is complete, that we are made holy and blameless in an instant, as it were, Paul seems to insist that we are still always moving forward in the process of more and more sanctification, of becoming more holy, always getting stronger, slowly but perpetually overpowering our opponent's arm. And for Paul, the degree to which he prays this process is comprehensive. In his words, may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless. And that adjective whole that Paul uses here has been found elsewhere in ancient papyri and inscriptions of the era as a synonym for good health, which I know sounds weird, but bear with me. Like there was a votive apparently that was discovered as an offering to the god Artemis for, and I quote, the wholeness of my feet. Same word. Uh, I'm not making this up. In the book of Acts, the same adjective describes the complete healing of a person previously unable to walk. In other words, they were made whole. So the point is, is that Paul adapts this term for his purposes, and he offers this prayer that the Thessalonian spirit and soul and body will come to moral health and wholeness, regenerated and recreated. Sanctification doesn't begin and end with our souls, or even with our minds and thought life. It must imbue everything about us from our innermost to outermost being. In Greek thought, the body was often kind of depreciated. You know, Plato, for example, famously described the body as a prison or a tomb um, from which the soul would eventually be liberated. The soul is the true part of you. The corporeal part of you is kind of the not real you in ancient Greek philosophy. But for Paul, a Hebrew, a disciple of Jesus, there is no eternal existence without a body. Even our physical body itself must be sanctified through and through. And our physical bodies, just like the body of Jesus, will be resurrected at the parousia. And Paul does this linguistic trick here with the word translated as whole by combining two Greek adjectives to make his point. The first one refers to the presence of all parts, meaning everything is accounted for. And the latter refers to full development or maturity or completion, meaning everything is there and everything is totally complete. Those two terms 
were also used to refer to the sacrifices of ancient Israel, which were required, if you've read the Old Testament, to be complete and perfect and whole and unblemished, which I get, that's a lot of content and a lot of ideas, but listen to this. The idea is that the Thessalonians are to be prepared to present themselves as worthy, complete, living sacrifices at the return of King Jesus. Perfect, whole, unblemished. And on top of that, Paul's audience was probably mostly Gentile for this particular church, and uh, in pagan or non-Jewish sacrifice, everything was dependent on the perfection of the ritual. We have all these ancient writings talk about how the knife couldn't slip, the timing had to be perfect, the animal had to cooperate, and on down the list. So whether they were Jews or Gentiles, remember how Paul ends his work. God is at work. And this whole incredible work of making the sacrifice whole and complete and perfect is something that God is doing and will do. So God's desire is for the sanctification of the Thessalonian, and, and God is the one who is busy faithfully carrying that work to completion. And Paul's prayer for the wholeness of the Thessalonian Jesus followers, the onus of ultimate responsibility and credit falls on God. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. All the stuff that Paul has written about in this letter, about uh, judgment and sexuality and grief and gratitude, prophecy, life and communi community, the Thessalonians who follow Jesus will be capable of carrying it out because God will enable them to do so via his empowering presence that is the Holy Spirit. Again, the question is, but how? And again, the answer is the Holy Spirit. So, listen to this. You and I will be capable of obeying and enacting all that we learn from the scriptures, from life and community, to the degree that we are increasingly sanctified and made complete by the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit calls us to be blameless, and through God's Spirit, we can become more and more over time blameless. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. But we know better, don't we? Being sanctified through and through sounds really nice, but our experience seems to indicate that such a thing is impossible. Even the suggestion that we might move closer in the direction of being made holy, for many of us, requires a lot of imagination. And many of us have either been taught or assumed by inference that either God zaps us holy in a moment, or else we have to sort of claw our way up holy mountain on our own strength as he scowls down at us from the summit. But in the scriptures, in the story of the Bible, it is the wonderful and often perplexing both and. It is absolutely the work of God that makes us more holy by the empowerment of the Spirit. And it is our cooperative and collaborative hard work, or to use language from the Scriptures, effort and striving to persist in that calling that solidifies it as a reality. Scholar N.T. Wright puts it this way, God is the one who will make his people holy so that they will be blameless at the coming of Jesus. Of course, Part of the means by which he will do this is the thinking, suffering, and struggling of the people themselves. This is the balance we must maintain at the heart of all Christian living. To be holy is hard work, but we believe that it is God himself 
present in our hearts by the Spirit who enables us to get on and do it. Paul doesn't suggest that only a reasonable amount of holiness is required. It must be complete. Some Christians, emphasizing the boundless love of God and the doctrine of justification by faith apart from works, run the risk of underestimating the call of holiness, which Paul, who is, after all, the great exponent of God's love and a free justification, never did. Neither our sanctification nor our being preserved blameless for the return of Jesus are entirely dependent on our own personal struggling for it. Remember that language, the one who called you is faithful. He will do it. I actually love and take great comfort in the simplicity and the finality of that writing. It's that simple. It's that conclusive. God will bring to pass in our lives what God has already begun. In the end, everything depends on the single reality that God is always and absolutely faithful. He will do it. So the question then for us is, how do you possibly embody both? Essentially, how do you learn to work hard, again, using the language of the scriptures, to make every effort while simultaneously embracing and trusting in the faithfulness and hard work of God? And what does it even mean to be made holy? Holy is about as churchy and misunderstood a word as they come, but another way of understanding that word is to be holy is to be made different. Or unique is my favorite translation. Set apart, dedicated to something. So naturally, to work against the grain of our own broken wirings and dispositions, to ask not how close can we get to sin without sinning, but how close can we get to God in all things. That disposition calls us to a very unique way of life. To grow in generosity and things like emotional health, Sure, I think most of us can kind of wrap our minds around that, at least conceptually. Those pursuits are in vogue at the moment. Even to grow in our openness to the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, all of that feels like less of a stretch than to pursue a comprehensive holiness that will inevitably situate us at deliberate odds with the ethos of our culture around us. When the uniqueness of God asks us about our money or our vices, or sexuality, or the way that we talk and eat and spend our time. And yet, there's the call. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is something the Spirit works out in cooperation with our hard work, an ongoing, overall reshaping of our character and aspects, great and small, alongside the family of God. This is, by the way, why we do practices in our communities. If holiness were, say, mastering the piano or the guitar, the practices are learning the scales or the lessons that form us in the shape of mastery slowly over time. This is very different than simply curbing bad habits. Because, listen, if you aim for the management of negative behavior, then you will hit temporary moral correction at best. If our aim is, on the other hand, blamelessness, then you're doing more than just rewiring habits. You are working at rewiring your character completely as the Spirit continues to sanctify us through and through. 
Sin management is like a piano student that makes the same mistake every time and in every attempt at performing a given piece, but rather than stopping to learn the methods and run the drills that will prevent said mistake, the student simply tries really hard to knowingly avoid it next time, next time, next time. One theologian describes it this way. I believe God's goal for us is not simply to be people who make sanctified choices, but to become people whose character and very identity is sanctified. Unlike God, whose eternal nature is to be perfect love, we can only acquire a genuinely sanctified character by repeatedly choosing the way of Jesus over all alternatives. We, of course, cannot choose this without God's grace, but we must nevertheless choose it. If we persist, in yielding to God's spirit and choosing sanctification, we will become a people who are by nature sanctified. Or, as Augustine famously put it quite simply, give me the grace to do as you command and then command me to do as you will. God does not call once. He continues to call daily in our every thought and deed and interaction. He calls us again and again to the way of Jesus, despite the kind of post-Reformation church's love affair with ideas like, oh, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. The New Testament actually prefers different terms for those who follow Jesus. Those terms are things like saints, perfected, made holy and blameless. I have three kids, and I know for a fact that none of them are perfect. Um, and you Van City Kids leaders, thank God for you, by the way. You know this as well because you get to hang out with them on Sunday nights. So I know that they're capable of disobedience. I know that they are capable of doing things that are selfish or unkind. But none of those things are at the forefront of my imaginations when my kids come to mind. Or when someone asks me about my kids. Oh, what's Beck like? I don't say, well, he's a sinner, but I love him anyway because I'm his dad. I say, and I mean it, honestly, the first thing that comes to my mind, he's awesome. He's incredible. He's smart and imaginative and creative. He's filled with this wild spirit and lots of raw emotion like me. People come up to me and say, well, tell me about Isla. The first thing I'd say would not be, oh, she's going through a hard fish. She throws tantrums when she doesn't get her way. It would be, she's kind. She's affectionate. She's silly. She's hilarious. She's confident. She's beautiful. And people are like, oh, you got a baby. That must be tough. Is Arlo a difficult baby? No, he's, he's an incredible person already. He's so sweet and so wonderfully particular and unique. He's not like his brother or sister. He's his own little guy. And maybe this is hard for you to hear. For many, many years of my life, it was very hard for me to hear. But this is how God the Father talks about you. He doesn't say, oh, they suck, but I choose to love them because I'm God. He says, that is my beloved daughter. He says, this is my chosen son. I am pleased with them. At your very worst, with all your garbage out in the open before God, he says, I am pleased with them. I choose them. I love them. God wants to sanctify you because he loves you. And he is after what is best for you in all things, all of the time. 
And yes, I see in the teaching of Jesus and the scriptures the continued call to perfection. It's very daunted, very intimidating to be healed, restored, complete. The call to holiness, to blamelessness. In the words of Jesus himself, my gosh, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Another way of translating his words there, be whole, mature, complete as your heavenly father is whole, mature, and complete. But for those of you who have said yes to the call of Jesus as your master... He has spoken this over you already. That is who you really are. You are made holy, perfected, blameless, without blemish. And the invitation of God over your life every day is be who you already are in Jesus. Maybe you are, like I am, you know, kind of well aware of the gaps in your discipleship. But knowing that I missed the mark is not the same thing as becoming holy. By partnering with the Spirit of God, trusting in God's faithfulness, and by making every effort, I can move toward holiness every day, week, month, and year. I make sanctified choices so that I become a person who is sanctified. You and I are being perpetually drawn out of our old former selves and into our new and truer identity as holy and blameless. God does not call once. He is always calling. And this sanctifying work can't just change the way that you handle your finances, but leave your sexuality the way that it is. It won't be satisfied to wake us up to the needs of other people through powerful justice, but then leave where and how and why we shop just like it is. It won't rest at instilling in us a deep concern for foster children and then leave us to the occasional night of drunken fun with friends. It won't teach and compel us to care for our minds, but not our bodies. The call to holiness is through and through, whole and complete spirit, soul, and body made blameless for the coming of Jesus. Tonight, I believe uh, the sobering reality the Spirit of God continues to confront us with is that God is not content with some holiness. And not because God is a cruel, micromanaging taskmaster, but because God is after your very best. And yes, he celebrates every step you take forward as any proud father does, and then he continues to call us further and further into holiness. I've said this before, but you know, when a toddler's learning to walk and they take a couple of steps and then fumble over, a half-decent dad doesn't say, oh my God, are you kidding me? Look at what I'm doing. This is the easiest. You can't do this. They celebrate each incremental step. It's appropriate for the time and season, and then we continue to teach them how to move forward. Many of you face that nagging itch of areas in your lives in which you knowingly persist in unholiness. You know what they are, and quite frankly, it is time to repent, to turn around or change. Others of you need to ask the Spirit to reveal areas in your lives in which you've been either ignorant of or complacent with a lack of holiness, and repent, no longer content with some holiness, but desperately driven forward by the call to be blameless in your whole spirit, soul, and body, desperate to ask God for the invitation, for the direction. How, God, how can there be more, more holiness, more wholeness for myself? Not to satiate, again, a micromanaging God, but so that you might have, in the words of Jesus, life and life to the fullest. 
And remember, this is not just for you. This is for your friends, for your communities, your spouses. It's for your children. And the beauty of what may seem like an unbearable assignment is the paradoxical way in which it is assigned. You will not be left to your own devices to carry this work out. God himself, the God of peace, will carry this work out for you. As another Advent and another Christmas tide, another year comes to an end, many of us are looking over the uneven terrain of our imperfect lives, and again, we resign ourselves to complacency or frustration or even defeat. But God thaws the snow of our wintered souls and calls us again and again, not to a rule, not to an ideal, but to himself. And we ask, like Mary, confronted with our own awfulness, how can this ever be? And he answers now, as he did then, by the Holy Spirit. And he, Emmanuel, the God who is with us, comes to us and walks with us and carries us. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Let's pray and invite God's Spirit to call and direct us tonight and to give us the grace to obey him. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.